Welcome to today's Triple Z. The Triple Z Podcast is a daily program that you can use to help you fall asleep each night. Just turn down the volume, lay back, relax and enjoy as you fall asleep. Today we are going to read an article written by one of the founding fathers of evolution. Alfred Russell Wallace, born on the 8th of January, 1823, died November 7, 1913, was a British naturalist, explorer, geographer, anthropologist, biologist, and illustrator. He is best known for independently conceiving the theory of evolution through natural selection. His 1858 paper on the subject was published the year alongside extracts from Charles Darwin's earlier writings on the topic. It spurred Darwin to set aside the big species book he was drafting and quickly write an abstract of it, published in 1859 as On the Origin of Species. If you enjoy our program, please be sure to write us a review on your podcast platform and share us with a friend. You both might sleep just a little better at night. Our website is triple Z, that's three Z's dot media. You can also like and share our content on Facebook or our Instagram account ZZZ Media Podcast. Music for today's episode was provided by the Sleep Channel on Spotify. While Wallace believed in evolution, he also believed that higher level thinking came from God and vigorously defended modern spiritualism. Here we read his article entitled In Defense of Modern Spiritualism. Preface The signs are that both the moral and the religious systems of the future will be greatly modified by the advance of science. They will be more and more conformed to the facts of nature, not only to the facts which a diligent materialism, working in a single direction, has brought to light, but to the transcendent facts which modern spiritualism has restored and proved. The one order of facts is incomplete without the other, and materialism is as surely doomed to be encircled and transfigured by the wider horizon of spiritualism as the Ptolemaic system of the universe was doomed to be superseded by the Copernican. Unpopular facts often encounter an opposition quite as persistent as that which follows unpopular theories, and so intelligent spiritualists are not disturbed by the antagonism which their facts have met with from the Huxleys, Tyndalls, Carpenters, and Bookners of our day. All these men, working as they are for science in their different ways, though under the disadvantage of an ignorance of certain phenomena of vast significance, are welcomed as fellow laborers in the cause of truth by spiritualists, for the latter, relying on their facts, are confident that genuine science includes them all, and that every new discovery must be in harmony with all that they hold as true. Opposition to the phenomena, proceeding as it does from lack of knowledge, simply indicates the magnitude and astonishing character of the facts themselves, which could excite such incredulity in the face of such overwhelming testimony. Among the men of science who have either admitted the facts, or both the facts and the theory of spiritualism, are Hare, chemist, Farley, F, R, S, electrician, Flammarion, astronomer, Crookes, F, R, S, chemist, 
Hopeful, author of the history of chemistry, Nichols, chemist, Fichte, philosopher, Fourier's astronomer, Hermann Goldschmidt, astronomer, and the discoverer of 14 planets, Von Eisenbach, the greatest modern German botanist, Huggins, F. R. S., astronomer and spectroscopist, duh. Morgan, mathematician, Dill, physicist, Elliot Sun, Ashburner, and Gray, physicians and surgeons. To no one eminent man of science, however, has spiritualism been more indebted than to Alfred Russell Wallace, F. R. S., distinguished for his researches in natural history, paleontology, and anthropology. His defense of spiritualism, here presented, appeared originally in the London Fortnightly Review for May and June 1874. Containing as it does the latest facts, no better track for spiritualists to offer as an answer to their opponents has yet appeared. Mr. Wallace, though he arrived simultaneously with Mr. Darwin, at similar conclusions in regard to the origin of species, differs from him on most important point, for Mr. Wallace believes that a superior intelligence is necessary to account for man. His acquaintance with the phenomena of spiritualism must always give him, in the sweep and comprehensiveness of his anthropology, a great advantage over Mr. Darwin. Besides his great work on the natural history of the Malay archipelago and an account of his explorations on the Amazon, Mr. Wallace is the author of the theory of natural selection and of many valuable papers in scientific journals. Dr. Hooker, president of the British Scientific Association, wrote in 1868 of Mr. Wallace and his many contributions to philosophical biology, it is not easy to speak without enthusiasm, for, putting aside their great merits, he, throughout his many writings, with a modesty as rare as I believe it to be in him unconscious, forgets his own unquestionable claims to the honor of having originated, independently of Mr. Darwin, the theories which he so ably defends. The testimony of such an investigator as Mr. Wallace in behalf of the stupendous phenomena of spiritualism is not to be lightly put aside or ignored. What can be said in reply to such an array of facts as he presents? He has a defense of modern spiritualism. It is with great diffidence but under an imperative sense of duty that the present writer accepts the opportunity afforded him of submitting to his readers some general account of a widespread movement, which, though for the most part treated with ridicule or contempt, he believes to embody truths of the most vital importance to human progress. The subject to be treated is of such vast extent, the evidence concerning it is so varied and so extraordinary, the prejudices that surround it are so inveterate that it is not possible to do it justice without entering into considerable detail. The reader who ventures on the perusal of the succeeding pages may, therefore, have his patience tried, but if he is able to throw aside his preconceived ideas of what is possible and what is impossible, and in the acceptance or rejection of the evidence submitted to him will carefully weigh and be solely guided by the nature of the concurrent testimony. 
the writer ventures to believe that he will not find his time and patience ill-bestowed. 1. The following are the more important works which have been used in the preparation of this article. Judge Edmonds' Spiritual Tracks, New York, 1858-1860. Robert Dale Owen's Footfalls on the Boundary of Another World, Trubner and Company, 1861. E. Hardinge's Modern American Spiritualism, New York, 1870. Robert Dale Owen's Debatable Land Between This World and the Next, Trubner and Company, 1871. Report on Spiritualism of the Committee of the London Dialectical Society, Longmans and Company, 1871. Yearbook of Spiritualism, Boston and London, 1871. Hudson Tuttle's Arcana of Spiritualism, Boston, 1871. The Spiritual Magazine, 1861-1874. The Spiritualist Newspaper, 1872-1874. The Medium and Daybreak, 1869-1874. Few men, in this busy age, have leisure to read massive volumes devoted to special subjects. They gain much of their general knowledge outside the limits of their profession or of any peculiar study by means of periodical literature and, as a rule, they are supplied with copious and accurate, though general, information. Some of our best thinkers and workers make known the results of their researches to the readers of magazines and reviews, and it is seldom that a writer whose information is meager or obtained at second hand is permitted to come before the public in their pages as an authoritative teacher. But as regards the subject we are now about to consider, this rule has not hitherto been followed. Those who have devoted many years to an examination of its phenomena have been, in most cases, refused a hearing, while men who have bestowed on it no adequate attention and are almost wholly ignorant of the researches of others have alone supplied the information to which a large proportion of the public have had access. In support of this statement, it is necessary to refer, with brief comments, to some of the more prominent articles in which the phenomena and pretensions of spiritualism have been recently discussed. At the beginning of the present year, the readers of this review were treated to experiences of spiritualism by a writer of no mean ability and of thoroughly advanced views. He assures his readers that he conscientiously endeavored to qualify himself for speaking on this subject by attending five seances, the details of several of which he narrates, and he comes to the conclusion that mediums are by no means ingenious deceivers, but jugglers of the most vulgar order, that the spiritualistic mind falls a victim to the most patent frauds, and greedily accepts jugglery as manifestations of spirits, and, lastly, that the mediums are as credulous as their dupes and fall straightway into any trap that is laid for them. Now, on the evidence before him and on the assumption that no more or better evidence would have been forthcoming had he devoted fifty instead of five evenings to the inquiry, the conclusions of Lord Amberley are perfectly logical, but, so far from lay witness being a specimen of the kind of manifestations by which spiritualists are convinced, 
a very little acquaintance with the literature of the subject would have shown him that no spiritualist of any mark was ever convinced by any quantity of such evidence. In an article published since Lord Amberley's in London Society for February, the author, a barrister and well-known literary man, says, It was difficult for me to get into the idea that solid objects could be conveyed invisibly through closed doors or that heavy furniture could be moved without the interposition of hands. Philosophers will say these things are absolutely impossible, nevertheless, it is absolutely certain that they do occur. I have met in the houses of private friends, as witnesses of these phenomena, persons whose testimony would go for a good deal in a court of justice. They have included peers, members of parliament, diplomatists of the highest rank, judges, barristers, physicians, clergymen, members of learned societies, chemists, engineers, journalists, and thinkers of all sorts and degrees. They have suggested and carried into effect tests of the most rigid and satisfactory character. The media, all non-professional, have been searched before and after seances. The precaution has even been taken of providing them unexpectedly with other apparel. They have been tied, they have been sealed, they have been secured in every cunning and dexterous manner that ingenuity could devise, but no deception has been discovered and no imposture brought to light. Neither was there any motive for imposture. No fee or reward of any kind depended upon the success or non-success of the manifestations. Now here we have a nice question of probabilities. We must either believe that Lord Amberley is almost infinitely more acute than Mr. Dunphy and his host of eminent friends, so that after five seances, most of them failures, he has got to the bottom of a mystery in which they, notwithstanding their utmost endeavors, still hopelessly flounder, or that the noble lord's acuteness does not surpass the combined acuteness of all these persons, in which case their much larger experience and their having witnessed many things Lord Amberley has not witnessed must be held to have the greater weight and to show, at all events, that all mediums are not jugglers of the most vulgar order. In October last, the new quarterly magazine, in its opening number, had an article entitled A Spiritualistic Seance, but which proved to be an account of certain ingenious contrivances by which some of the phenomena usual at seances were imitated, and both spiritualists and skeptics deceived and confounded. This appears at first sight to be an exposure of spiritualism, but it is really very favorable to its pretensions, for it goes on the assumption that the marvelous eight phenomena witnessed do really occur, but are produced by various mechanical contrivances. In this case, the rooms above, below, and at the side of that in which the seance was held had to be prepared with specially constructed machinery with assistance to work it. The apparatus, as described, would cost at least 100 pounds and would then only serve to produce a few fixed phenomena such as happen frequently in private houses and at the lodgings of mediums who have not exclusive possession of any of the adjoining rooms or the means of obtaining expensive machinery and hired assistance.
The article bears internal evidence of being altogether a fictitious narrative, but it helps to demonstrate, if any demonstration is required, that the phenomena which occur under such protean forms in varied conditions and in private houses quite as often as at the apartments of the mediums are in no way produced by machinery. Perhaps the most prominent recent attack on spiritualism was that in the Quarterly Review for October 1871, which is known to have been written by an eminent physiologist and did much to blind the public to the real nature of the movement. This article, after giving a light sketch of the reported phenomena, entered into some details as to planchette writing and table lifting, facts on which no spiritualist depends as evidence to a third party, and then proceeded to define its standpoint as follows. Our position, then, is that the so-called spiritual communications come from within, not from without, the individuals who suppose themselves to be the recipients of them, that they belong to the class termed subjective by physiologists and psychologists, and that the movements by which they are expressed, whether the tilting of tables or the writing of planchettes, are really produced by their own muscular action exerted independently of their own wills and quite unconsciously to themselves. Several pages are then devoted to accounts of seances which, like Lord Amberley's, were mostly failures, and to the experiences of a Bath clergyman who believed that the communications came from devils, and, generally, such weak and inconclusive phenomena only are adduced as can be easily explained by the well-worn formulae of unconscious cerebration, expectant attention, and unconscious muscular action. A few of the more startling physical phenomena are mentioned merely to be discredited and the judgment of the witnesses impugned, but no attempt is made to place before the reader any information as to the amount or the weight of the testimony to such phenomena or to the long series of diverse phenomena which lead up to and confirm them. Some of the experiments of Professor Hare and Mr. Crooks are quoted and criticized in the spirit of assuming that these experienced physicists were ignorant of the simplest principles of mechanics and failed to use the most ordinary precautions. Of the numerous and varied cases on record of heavy bodies being moved without direct or indirect contact by any human being, no notice is taken except so far as quoting Mr. C. F. Farley's statement that he had seen, in broad daylight, a small table move ten feet, with no one near it but himself, and not touched by him, as an example of the manner in which minds of this limited order are apt to become the dupes of their own imaginings. This article, like the others here referred to, shows in the writer an utter forgetfulness of the maxim that an argument is not answered till it is answered at its best. Amid the vast mass of recorded facts now accumulated by spiritualists, there is, of course, much that is weak and inconclusive, much that is of no value as evidence, except to those who have independent reasons for faith in them. From this undigested mass it is the easiest thing in the world to pick out arguments that can be refuted and facts that can be explained away, but what is that to the purpose? It is not these that have convinced anyone, but those weightier, oft-repeated and oft-tested facts which the writers refer to invariably ignore. Professor Tyndall has also given the world, 
in his Fragments of Science, published in 1871, some account of his attempt to investigate these phenomena. Again, we have a minute record of a seance which was a failure and in which the professor, like Lord Amberley, easily imposed on some too credulous spiritualists by improvising a few manifestations of his own. The article in question is dated as far back as 1864. We may therefore conclude that the professor has not seen much of the subject, nor can he have made himself acquainted with what others have seen and carefully verified, or he would hardly have thought his communication worthy of the place it occupies among original researches and positive additions to human knowledge. Both its facts and its reasonings have been well replied to by Mr. Patrick Fraser Alexander in his little work entitled Spiritualism, a narrative and a discussion, which we recommend to those who care to see how a very acute yet unprejudiced mind looks at the phenomena and how inconclusive, even from a scientific standpoint, are the experiences adduced by Professor Tyndall. The discussion in the Pall Mall Gazette in 1868 and a considerable private correspondence indicates that scientific men almost invariably assume that, in this inquiry, they should be permitted, at the very outset, to impose conditions, and if, under such conditions, nothing happens, they consider it a proof of imposture or delusion. But they will know that, in all other branches of research, nature, not they, determines the essential conditions without a compliance with which no experiment will succeed. These conditions have to be learned by a patient questioning of nature, and they are different for each branch of science. How much more may they be expected to differ in an inquiry which deals with subtle forces of the nature of which the physicist is wholly and absolutely ignorant? To ask to be allowed to deal with these unknown phenomena as he has hitherto dealt with known phenomena is practically to prejudge the question since it assumes that both are governed by the same laws. From the sketch which has now been given of the recent treatment of the subject by popular and scientific writers, we can summarize pretty accurately their mental attitude in regard to it. They have seen very little of the phenomena themselves and they cannot believe that others have seen much more. They have encountered people who are easily deceived by a little unexpected trickery, and they conclude that the convictions of spiritualists generally are founded on phenomena produced either consciously or unconsciously in a similar way. They are so firmly convinced on a priori grounds that the more remarkable phenomena said to happen do not really happen that they will back their conviction against the direct testimony of any body of men preferring to believe that they are all the victims of some mysterious delusion whenever imposture is out of the question. To influence persons in this frame of mind it is evident that more personal testimony to isolated facts is utterly useless. They have to use the admirable expression of Dr. Carpenter, no place in the existing fabric of their thought into which such facts can be fitted. It is necessary, therefore, to modify the fabric of thought itself, and it appears to the present writer that this can best be done by a general historic sketch of the subject, and by showing, by separate lines of inquiry, 
how wide and varied is the evidence and how remarkably these lines converge toward one uniform conclusion. The endeavor will be made to indicate by typical examples of each class of evidence and without unnecessary detail the cumulative force of the argument. Historical Sketch Modern spiritualism dates from March 1848, it being then that, for the first time, intelligent communications were held with the unknown cause of the mysterious knockings and other sounds similar to those which had disturbed the Maupassant and Wesley families in the 17th and 18th centuries. This discovery was made by Miss Kate Fox, a girl of nine years old, and the first recognized example of an extensive class now known as mediums. It is worthy of remark that this very first modern spiritual manifestation was subjected to the test of unlimited examination by all the inhabitants of the village of Hydesville, New York. Though all were utter skeptics, no one could discover any cause for the noises, which continued, though with less violence, when all the children had left the house. Nothing is more common than the remark that it is absurd and illogical to impute noises of which we cannot discover the cause to the agency of spirits. So it undoubtedly is when the noises are merely noises, but is it so illogical when these noises turn out to be signals and signals which spell out a fact, which fact, though wholly unknown to all present, turns out to be true? Yet, on this very first occasion, 26 years ago, the signals declared that a murdered man was buried in the cellar of the house. It indicated the exact spot in the cellar under which the body lay, and upon digging there, at a depth of six or seven feet, considerable portions of a human skeleton were found. Yet more, the name of the murdered man was given, and it was ascertained that such a person had visited that very house and had disappeared five years before and had never been heard of since. The signals further declared that he, the murdered man, was the signaler, and as all the witnesses had satisfied themselves that the signals were not made by any living person or by any assignable cause, the logical conclusion from the facts was that it was the spirit of the murdered man although such a conclusion might be to some in the highest degree improbable and to others in the highest degree absurd. Two, it may be as well here to explain that the word spirit, which is often considered to be so objectionable by scientific men, is used throughout this article, or at all events in the earlier portions of it, merely to avoid circumlocution in the sense of the intelligent cause of the phenomena and not as implying the spirits of the dead, unless so expressly stated. The Mrs. Fox now became involuntary mediums, and the family, which had removed to the city of Rochester, were accused of imposture and offered to submit the children to examination by a committee of townsmen appointed in public meeting. Three committees were successively appointed, the last, composed of violent skeptics who had accused the previous committees of stupidity or connivance. But all three, after unlimited investigation, were forced to declare that the cause of the phenomenon was undiscoverable. The sounds occurred on the wall and floor while the mediums, after being thoroughly searched by ladies, stood on pillows, barefooted, 
and with their clothes tied round their ankles. The last and most skeptical committee reported that they had heard sounds and failed utterly to discover their origin. They had proved that neither machinery nor imposture had been used and their questions, many of them being mental, were answered correctly. When we consider that the mediums were two children under 12 years of age and the examiners utterly skeptical American citizens thoroughly resolved to detect imposture and urged on by excited public meetings, it may perhaps be considered that even at this early stage the question of imposture or delusion was pretty well settled in the negative. In a short time persons who sat with the Mrs. Fox found themselves to have similar powers in a greater or less degree, and in two or three years the movement had spread over a large part of the United States, developing into a variety of strange forms, encountering the most violent skepticism and the most rancorous hostility, yet always progressing, and making converts even among the most enlightened and best educated classes. In 1851, some of the most intelligent men in New York, judges, senators, doctors, lawyers, merchants, clergymen, and authors formed themselves into a society for investigation. Judge Edmonds was one of these, and a sketch of the kind and amount of evidence that was required to convince him will be given further on. In 1854, a second spiritual society was formed in New York. It had the names of four judges and two physicians among its vice presidents, showing that the movement had by this time become respectable and that men in high social positions were not afraid of identifying themselves with it. A little later, Professor Mapes, an eminent agricultural chemist, was led to undertake the investigation of spiritualism. He formed a circle of 12 friends, most of them men of talent and skeptics, who bound themselves to sit together weekly with a medium 20 times. For the first 18 evenings, the phenomena were so trivial and unsatisfactory that most of the party felt disgusted at the loss of time, but the last two sittings produced phenomena of so startling a character that the investigation was continued by the same circle for four years and all became spiritualists. By this time the movement had spread into every part of the Union and, notwithstanding that its adherents were abused as impostors or dupes, that they were in several cases expelled from colleges and churches and were confined as lunatics, and that the whole thing was explained over and over again, it has continued to spread up to the present hour. The secret of this appears to have been that the explanations given never applied to the phenomena continually occurring and of which there were numerous witnesses. A medium was raised in the air in a crowded room in full daylight. Modern American Spiritualism, page 279. A scientific skeptic prepared a small portable apparatus by which he could produce an instantaneous illumination and taking it to a dark seance at which numerous musical instruments were played, suddenly lighted up the room while a large drum was being violently beaten in the certain expectation of revealing the imposter to the whole company. But what they all saw was the drumstick itself beating the drum with no human being near it. It struck a few more blows 
then rose into the air and descended gently onto the shoulder of a lady. Same work, page 337. At Toronto, Canada, in a well-lighted room, an accompaniment to a song was played on a closed and locked piano. Same work, page 463. Communications were given in raised letters on the arm of an ignorant servant girl who often could not read them. They sometimes appeared while she was at her household work and after being read by her master or mistress would disappear. Same work, page 196. Letters closed in any number of envelopes, sealed up of even pasted together over the whole of the written surface, were read and answered by certain mediums in whom this special power was developed. It mattered not what language the letters were written in, and it is upon record that letters in German, Greek, Hebrew, Arabic, Chinese, French, Welsh and Mexican have been correctly answered in the corresponding languages by a medium who knew none of them. Judge Edmonds's Letters on Spiritualism, pages 59 to 103, appendix. Other mediums drew portraits of deceased persons whom they had never known or heard of. Others healed diseases. But those who helped most to spread the belief were, perhaps, the trans speakers who, in eloquent and powerful language, developed the principles and the uses of spiritualism, answered objections, spread abroad a knowledge of the phenomena, and thus induced skeptics to inquire into the facts, and inquiry was almost invariably followed by conversion. Having repeatedly listened to three of these speakers who have visited this country, I can bear witness that they fully equal and not unfrequently surpass our best orators and preachers, whether in finished eloquence, in close and logical argument, or in the readiness with which appropriate and convincing replies are made to all objectors. They are also remarkable for the perfect courtesy and suavity of their manner, and for the extreme patience and gentleness with which they meet the most violent opposition and the most unjust accusations. Men of the highest rank and greatest ability became convinced by these very phenomena. No amount of education, of legal, medical or scientific training was proof against the overwhelming force of the facts whenever these facts were systematically and perseveringly inquired into. The number of spiritualists in the union is, according to those who have the best means of judging, from eight to eleven millions. This is the estimate of Judge Edmonds, who has had extensive correspondence on this subject with every part of the United States. The Honorable R. D. Owen, who has also had great opportunities of knowing the facts, considers it to be approximately correct, and it is affirmed by the editors of the Yearbook of Spiritualism for 1871. These numbers have been held to be absurdly exaggerated by persons having less information, especially by strangers who have made superficial inquiries in America, but it must be remembered that the spiritualists are to a very limited extent an organized body, and that the mass of them make no public profession of their belief, but still remain members of some denominational church, circumstances that would greatly deceive an outsider. Nevertheless, the organization is of considerable extent. 
There were in America, in 1870, 20 state associations and 105 societies of spiritualists, 207 lecturers, and about the same number of public mediums. In other parts of the world the movement has progressed more or less rapidly. Several of the more celebrated American mediums have visited this country and not only made converts in all classes of society, but led to the formation of private circles and the discovery of mediumistic power in hundreds of families. There is scarcely a city or a considerable town in continental Europe at the present moment where spiritualists are not reckoned by hundreds, if not by thousands. There are said, on good authority, to be 50,000 avowed spiritualists in Paris and 10,000 in Lyons, and the numbers in England may be roughly estimated by the fact that there are four exclusively spiritual periodicals, one of which has a circulation of 5,000 weekly. Deductions from the preceding sketch Before proceeding to a statement of the evidence which has convinced the more educated and more skeptical converts, let us consider briefly the bearing of the undoubted fact that, to keep within bounds, Many thousands of well-informed men, belonging to all classes of society and all professions, have, in each of the great civilized nations of the world, acknowledged the objective reality of these phenomena, although, almost without exception, they at first viewed them with dislike or contempt, as impostures or delusions. There is nothing parallel to it in the history of human thought because there never before existed so strong and apparently so well-founded a conviction that phenomena of this kind never have happened and never can happen. It is often said that the number of adherents to a belief is no proof of its truth. This remark justly applies to most religions whose arguments appeal to the emotions and the intellect but not to the evidence of the senses. It is equally just as applied to a great part of modern science. The almost universal belief in gravitation and in the undulatory theory of light does not render them in any degree more probable because very few indeed of the believers have tested the facts which most convincingly demonstrate those theories or are able to follow out the reasoning by which they are demonstrated. It is for the most part a blind belief accepted upon authority. But with these spiritual phenomena, the case is very different. They are to most men so new, so strange, so incredible, so opposed to their whole habit of thought, so apparently opposed to the pervading scientific spirit of the age, that they cannot and do not accept them on second-hand evidence, as they do almost every other kind of knowledge. The thousands or millions of spiritualists therefore, represent to a very large extent men who have witnessed, examined, and tested the evidence for themselves over and over and over again, till that which they had at first been unable to admit could be true, they have at last been compelled to acknowledge is true. This accounts for the utter failure of all the attempted exposures and explanations to convince one solitary believer of his error. The exposers and explainers have never got beyond those first difficulties which constitute the pons asinorum of spiritualism, which every believer has to get over, but at which early stage of investigation no converts are ever made.
by explaining table turning or table tilting or wraps, you do not influence a man who is never convinced by these, but who, in broad daylight, sees objects move without contact and behave as if guided by intelligent beings, and who sees this in a variety of forms, in a variety of places, and under such varied and stringent conditions as to make the fact to him just as real as the movement of iron to the magnet. By explaining automatic writing, which itself convinces no one but the writer, and not always even him, you do not affect the belief of the man who has obtained writing when neither pencil nor paper was touched by anyone, or has seen a hand not attached to any human body take up a pencil and write, or, as Mr. Andrew Layton of Liverpool testifies, has seen a pencil rise of itself on a table and write the words. And is this world of strife to end in dust at last? Thus it is that there are so few recantations or perverts in spiritualism, so few that it may be truly said there are none. After much inquiry and reading, I can find no example of a man who, having acquired good personal knowledge of all the chief phases of the phenomena, has subsequently come to disbelieve in their reality. If the explanations and exposures were good for anything, or if it were an imposture to expose or a delusion to explain, this could not be the case, because there are numbers of men who have become convinced of the facts, but who have not accepted the spiritual theory. These are, for the most part, in an uncomfortable and unsettled frame of mind, and would gladly welcome an explanation which really explained anything, but they find it not. As an eminent example of this class, I may mention Dr. J. Lockhart Robertson, long one of the editors of the Journal of Mental Science, a physician who, having made mental disease his special study, would not be easily taken in by any psychological delusions. The phenomena he witnessed 14 years ago were of a violent character, a very strong table being, at his own request and in his own house, broke into pieces while he held the medium's hands. He afterwards himself tried to break a remaining leg of the table, but failed to do so after exerting all his strength. Another table was tilted over while all the party sat on it. He subsequently had a sitting with Mr. Holm and witnessed the usual phenomena occurring with that extraordinary medium, such as the accordion playing most wonderful music without any human agency, a shadow hand, not that of any one present, which lifts a pencil and writes with it, etc., etc., and he says that he can no more doubt the physical manifestations of so-called spiritualism than he would any other fact, as, for example, the fall of an apple to the ground of which his senses informed him. His record of these phenomena, with the confirmation by a friend who was present, is published in the Dialectical Society's Report on Spiritualism, page 247, and, at a meeting of spiritualists in 1870, he reasserted the facts, but denied their spiritual origin. To such a man the quarterly reviewer's explanations are worthless, yet it may be safely said that every advanced spiritualist has seen more remarkable, more varied, and even more inexplicable phenomena than those recorded by Dr. Robertson, and is therefore still further out of reach of the arguments referred to, 
which are indeed only calculated to convince those who know little or nothing of the matter. 